Good morning. That is a favorite song. Be Thou My Vision, and it's perfect for today's uh, passage of Scripture in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. It was also the, the uh, kind of official song of uh, Western Seminary where I taught and was uh, on faculty for several years. And I love that phrase. Well, all of them are special. You just sang it, so you know what I'm talking about. But uh, my best thought by day or by night. I love that. My best thought by day or by night. That kind of resonates with me. It probably does you too. But this morning's message is uh, indeed all about something very familiar to us something that can be spoken about in a number of ways, and that is uh, setting your eyes on Jesus, making Jesus your vision, uh, your best thought by day or by night. Not a random thought, not a long thought, not a distant thought, not a rare thought, but your best thought by day or by night. Uh, This morning, before we read Revelation 3, I wanted to uh, just share a couple of thoughts about the city of Philadelphia, or Philadelphia. Philadelphia, compound word that means brotherly love, brotherly affection, loyalty. And the city was named after two, well, actually uh, more than two, but two prominent brothers. The, the brothers were famous across the Mediterranean. I mean, if you picked up uh, an ancient historian like Polybius who writes about uh, uh, the ro- wars between Rome and Carthage and, and everything that's going on in the world at that time, Attalus II and Eumenes come up again and again and again. And even a king uh, schools his sons, encourages them to be like the brothers, Attalus and Eumenes. And we're not sure whether it was Eumenes uh, who was nicknamed Philadelphus, whether it was uh, after him or through him or because of him that this city was founded. Uh, But it certainly was meant to honor the brothers, their love for each other, their loyalty to each other. And uh, it was a city that was supposed to be forward-looking. Of course, the Lydian culture uh, was being, so to speak, eclipsed by Greek and Roman culture and uh, the new ways, the Greek language replaced the Lydian. It was uh, was kind of a crossroads uh, in the Mediterranean world and thought to be a, a wonderful place where East and West meet. And so uh, it was uh, 
an important city because it represented the best hopes and aspirations of a king and his land and the cities of that land, the seven cities that are mentioned here in Revelation, looking forward to a bright, bright future. And uh, the Adelids, as they were known, uh, this king, his brothers, they were very close to Rome and had Rome's favor and Rome ruled the world and the, the world and the future were in the hands of Rome. That's kind of the way uh, the, the narrative of culture in the Mediterranean ran uh, during the empire. And so as we come here, uh, there are kind of winks and nods in the passage that may refer to some of these uh, circumstances. In A.D. 17, and if you think about that, um, we believe Jesus was born sometime between 6 and 4 B.C., so that makes him about 21 at the time, and uh, an earthquake devastated this entire province that you see here highlighted in yellow. And it was only six miles from the crossroads, uh, the kind of the thoroughfare on which Philadelphus was built. And it was not entirely destroyed, but all the cities, and of course this is historically recorded that the... Uh, the Emperor Tiberius and the Senate of Rome and other nations poured in aid and uh, assistance upon them. But Philadelphus, even though this writing of Revelation comes much, many years after that, they continued to experience tremors. And it was a way of life for them. And they were constantly having to evacuate the city because of tremors due to their proximity to the epicenter of this uh, major earthquake because they were, the city was built on a fault. So there are lots of little allusions and scholars think that even the idea of you shall not go out toward the end of this message is a reference to the fact that uh, they'll be secure within the temple, within the kingdom of God, and not have to flee the city out of fear of their buildings falling in on them. Things such as that. So let's read this passage together. Uh, Revelation 3, starting at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, or look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you 
from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, on our 10th wedding anniversary, we made plans to celebrate in Lake Tahoe. Uh, 10th wedding anniversary just a few years ago. And since we celebrated uh, a double wedding, we made it a foursome, and Shelley's sister Laurel and husband Mike were going to come by and pick us up, and we wanted to get away as early as we could. And uh, so when we got off of work, we scurried home, and you know how that goes. You're scrambling around to get everything. Have you got everything? And you're checking this and that. And as soon as they arrived, we ran out, jumped in the car. We were backing out of the driveway when I bellowed, wait, stop the car. I forgot my wallet. I said, I'll be just a minute. I jumped out of the car and ran up to the house. And as I was running, I was padding for my keys, and I realized I didn't have my keys, so I ran back to the car, and I asked Shelly if she had her key. And she said, well, I gave it to the house sitter. So I said, okay, wait, I'll be right back. I ran back to the house, and I'm jiggling, right? All the doors, I'm moving, trying. The house is secure. So I run back to the car, and they kind of in a wilted sort of way say, did you get in? Did you get your wallet? Because it was so hot that afternoon, and they were growing impatient. So I said, uh, I've got an idea. Mike, come with me. We went to the back of the house, and there was a window where there was one of those old swamp coolers, and we removed the air conditioning unit because I figured, you know, that's got to be better than breaking a window or waiting for a locksmith. And sure enough, we were able to make it so I could squiggle in and I got my wallet. We came back, we ran out to the car, got in the car, hiked up the air conditioning and... Uh, Boy, what a sigh of relief after 30 minutes of harried effort trying to find the key and get in the house. Um, we were pulling out of the driveway and headed for Tahoe. And then it was at that moment that I had this most horrifying, sickening feeling come over me because I realized in the bottom of my pocket was a solitary key that I had overlooked. You know, I was, I was searching for my big wad of keys when I was running to the house, but Shelley had 
given me a single key which was buried and flat in my pocket. And, you know, it's funny how sometimes the one key you need is overlooked because it's among so many others. And yet it's that one key that is the open door, that creates the open door. And Jesus is the key, the one key. He holds the key of David, we're told in verse 7. And the key of David goes back to Isaiah. The entire chapter is worth a read, but verse 22, there were, there were at that time... Um, well, there was kind of a major domo. He, he was King David's aide. He held the key, so to speak. And the Lord addresses him because he's dishonest, he's crooked. He has an effect on all of God's people, and so he levels a judgment, and he replaces him with Elkaniah. And Elkaniah is given the key of David. So what this looks back to is that human, that kingdom of Israel, that kingdom of God's people that he was succoring and trying to cultivate and develop and bring along in their faith and their devotion to him. But this now passage looks, in a sense, forward and not just backward, forward, and outward, and beyond to the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem, which is in fact mentioned here in verse 12 at the end of this passage. It is Jesus because he holds that solitary key that what he opens cannot be closed and what he closes cannot be opened. I've been thinking about this for a little over a week because uh, even when we were off for a few days, uh, um, we were on vacation and uh, we didn't get to take all of that time that was free, so it was in many ways a working vacation, but we got a weekend away and uh, Shelley used, I think, something like Hotwire. Are you familiar with some of these sites where you can grab a pretty upscale or a nice hotel at a very reduced rate because they want to fill their rooms. They make no money off of empty rooms. And she, she got a room in Costa Mesa. It was, it was upscale to me because when we drove in there, all the cars were big and shiny and really super clean and people were dressed to the hilt. I think there was a BMW, I mean it looked like a Lamaze or a Ferrari type version of this BMW, it had to have run over 200 grand. And they had doormen that were opening the doors and every time we came to the door, even though we drove in in our little dirty CRV, we carried our own bags everywhere. We were pitiful. We didn't deserve to be there, but, but they treated us just like we did. Every time, and that was the astonishing thing. I'd be walking, and I didn't have to ask them to open. They anticipated me. And they opened the doors, and they smiled. 
And they talked to me. And it made me feel, well, it elated me, lifted my spirit, made me feel good. Jesus here to the church at Philadelphia, they have been faithful, but they are of little strength. They have not denied his name. They have held fast the message of Jesus' admonition to endure, to persist, to go the distance, to not give up. Don't quit no matter what confronts you, what disappoints you, what discourages you, what defeats you in this world, what opposes you, no matter what, hold fast to my name. He says, for this reason, Ta-da, an open door. It represents opportunity. It represents a future. It probably represents a range of things from Jesus himself, who is the door in Scripture, to opportunities to be a movement for Jesus because of the gospel because of the new life that we enjoy, because we are the new creation. And we're doing this in the midst of a world that is the old creation, that has no message, that has no bright future, that belongs and is limited by an earthly kingdom, not heavenly. And so this open door, this is what I want us to contemplate. I want us to imagine that Jesus is the doorman in your life. Whatever you're facing today, whatever your struggle, it may have several parts. It, it may involve people that have exhausted you, discouraged you, frustrated you, angered you. It may be a work situation in which you're disheartened. In fact, on Sunday afternoons, you can't enjoy them because you realize, well, not tomorrow, but generally on a Monday, you have to get up and go to work. And it's only a job to you anymore. Maybe it's a situation with a relative or a classmate. Whatever the circumstance and condition of your life, this last week since I've been pondering the open door and the doorman, just imagine, even as we sang, Be Thou My Vision, by day or by night, my finest thought, my best thought is you. 
if in each and every situation, with each and every person, every disappointment, you could see Jesus as the doorman of your life, opening it to opportunity. Not that things should go just your way and fall into place to satisfy our own kind of cultural interests and desires, the kind of the fleshly ones, the selfish ones, the ones that are materialistic and not spiritual. But what if we saw the open door with Jesus holding it open and we saw in that the higher virtues of our place within his kingdom, our membership and citizenship of the new Jerusalem, that we belong to the new creation, the people of God, and there is no situation in each and every day, in each and every situation where Jesus is not the doorman. Jesus is not the one who says, with me all things are possible. And you cannot just suffer this, but you can influence it in a way that brings an open door that I've given to you to others. The open door of the gospel, the open door of new life, the open door of new thoughts and aspirations that are ours because we are heavenly minded. We are Christ minded. We have his spirit in us. This is transforming stuff. And so, yes, the door stands open to you. That's the message. It is more specific to them and their trials and difficulties. And I want us to look at that very quickly. He says, I know as does every message. This message, unlike the other messages, has no correction, no condemnation. It's so positive, but they are a people of little strength. And so when he says the door is open, we see here in this message three important things. They have little strength in verse 8. They know opposition that is fierce in verse 9, and that is Jewish opposition. And they are going to face difficulties right along with everybody else that are coming. And those are mentioned in verses 10 and 11. But to each of these, this open door represents a call to press on in spite of these things, to perk up in spite of, okay, that's my P word, but the most important thing here is that there is an elevation of their spirits in a very disheartening situation in which the Jewish synagogue, I mean, when you think about it, if, if you were believers in Christ, you would feel you would think an affiliation with the historical people of God, the people of Israel, the people of God's testament, and yet they shut the door to the Christians. They said, you're not the people of God. We're the true people of God. 
And that's why the promise of love here when Christ says the day's going to come when because they're going to bow to me something that they don't recognize because they don't see me, verse 7, as the holy one and true one, they will bow down and they will acknowledge that I have loved you. And so here in these three points, he says, even though you're of little strength, press on. Even though you face great opposition and they have shut the door to you, I have not shut the door. The door is open for you. You belong to me and they'll know it one day. I'm going to show them my love for you. How encouraging would that be for you if in your Life for Christ, you were were persecuted, discouraged, rejected, ignored, belittled because of Jesus. But you thought of the fact that one day these who belittle and oppose and discourage and defeat me will know that I, through it all, knew the love of Jesus Christ. And we do. His love is not just demonstrated in sweet and pretty circumstances. He communicates it to us in the midst of our trials and difficulties and challenges. But one day it will be demonstrated in the most powerful ways. And so he says, even though you're of little strength, you know, I, I shudder to think where I'd be today if I hadn't challenged my self-doubts as a new believer in Christ. You have no idea. I don't know how you see me. I see myself like you see yourself. But I can tell you, when I started this walk with Christ, you couldn't get me to do anything. Everybody was more qualified than me to be used of God. And if I hadn't started to challenge those doubts, those self-doubts, challenge those disqualifying thoughts, well, I certainly wouldn't be talking to you now. I wouldn't know the call of God on my life. And I'll bet all of us, to some degree, all of us, to some degree this morning, could raise our hand and say, I know what it feels like. I know what goes through my heart and my mind when I step out in faith, when I take a risk and do that which doesn't come naturally to me which isn't a part of the fund or the bank of my experience. And why should it be? Because our experience is based on our culture, our upbringing, what our friends say to us, what our parents taught us. But then we're confronted by Jesus Christ and his word, and it's full of new earth-shattering, ground-trembling ideas that don't come comfortably It is easier to say, certainly God doesn't expect me to take off my cloak and give it to somebody and then give my tunic too or to go to the extra mile or to turn the other cheek just to pick on a few. 
But what if we actually started doing those things in the service of showing the reality of Christ in word and deed to others wherever we're at in our situations? I don't, I've never experienced the things that the Philadelphians and these other churches faced. I mean, things happen at work and not work now, but, you know, I wasn't always a pastor. I wasn't born a pastor. Uh, I was more of an anti-pastor. I've worked other jobs, work construction, work plumbing, things like that, fields, farming. When I was a new believer, yeah, I've had friends say, I don't want you to talk to me anymore about Jesus Christ. Those things come up. I understand that. But the kind of persecution and rejection, I don't understand that. But you know what? I do understand that sometimes, and not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I have opportunities in almost each and every situation to mediate the love of God with my small part. In, in every person, in every, throughout the day, if we could see the doorman holding that door open, how powerful would that be to us instead of just walking along like a robot programmed by our culture? What if we were to be energized, to press on, to perk up, and to persist in living for him and knowing the adventure and the excitement of actually letting his heart shape our heart, his words shape our words, his thoughts, our thoughts, his actions, our actions. You would realize the purpose that God has for you in this life. And you would find meaning in each and every day because each and every day you would be in some way making a constructive, positive impact and moreover, you would be growing in your maturity in Christ and deepening your understanding of what it means to live the life of faith. And then all this other stuff would come increasingly naturally. And the church entire, Grace Community, the Church of Philadelphus, would be a powerful church, a powerful presence in living for Jesus Christ. We uh, use this, well, Shelly uses this. Shelly's not here because she's in the nursery. She didn't ask me to tell you that, but I thought it would be a good plug for the children's ministry. I asked her to speak in my place so I could be in the nursery, but she didn't go for that. But we use this app called Waze. Have you ever heard of that? It's kind of a navigational GPS sort of thing. Parts of it can be annoying. But anyway, I'm not going to go into those details. But here's the thing. When you use a device like this, whenever you're coming up, it anticipates a traffic jam and it reroutes you so that you can get there in the most efficient way possible. And here's the weird part. When we, now Shelly was, 
cool with this because she had used it in a lot of her driving, so she was accustomed to it. She trusted it. But I had to learn because sometimes it would take me in the total opposite direction that intuitively I thought, believed we should be going. And yet it ended up rerouting us in a way, even though for a time it seemed to just go, that can't be right. You always end up in the right place, ahead of the clogged traffic, and on time for your destination. You know, that's very much like the Christian life because sometimes when you follow Jesus, it just intuitively, and why intuitively? Because our intuition is trained by our past. And sometimes it just seems so counterintuitive to walk by faith. But every time you take risks of faith, it is a risk because your experience, your upbringing, your training, the enculturation says, this is the more comfortable thing to me. And Jesus is saying, step out of your comfort zone. The door is open. See, I've opened it with this difficult person in this difficult situation. Not just that you should float on through passively, but that you should let me embody you, empower you with my spirit, change your attitude, give you words that you can't find in your own strength, give you a vision of what can be because of what I can do through you. That's the open door. And that's what I believe. Jesus is offering us because he holds the key of David. It's his kingdom. And that's what's promised in verse 12. It's amazing all the things that are promised, but chief among them, chief among them is this idea that we're going to bear the name of God, the name of the city, and the name of Jesus himself. I will have a pillar erected there. These are just the highest of honors. There are things that are not of this world that should be motivating us. When our only motivation comes from the world, of course we'll be constantly discouraged and disappointed and defeated. So the door stands open, and I hope you'll be thinking about the doorman this week. Every time you run into any situation, think of the doorman. Maybe it'll help you approach life's circumstances and press on and perk up and persist in Christ. This week, uh, I uh, Googled the dynamics of seizing opportunity Wow, I didn't even realize it was a thing, but evidently I hit on some words that are like this new business trend, and it was just page, link after link for pages of pretty much the same thing. But the, the kind of the protocols of what they're teaching, the new buzz in business was sense, seize, and... What was the third one? Um, I would say transform, but they had a different word. It was to rearrange. Sense, seize, 
and renovate or something, you know, where you're tinkering with things to make it work better. Anyway, I got to thinking, we don't need a business model or a trend. We have a person. And this is meant to cause us to sense the opportunity right now where we're at. And to seize it, not, not just to sense it, but to take it. Take it into hand and use it to the fullest. And then to make a rearrangement, a renovation, a transformation. There are things in our lives that this bread and this cup, when it calls our attention, is meant to cause us to make some adjustments as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup, we can only sense, seize, and rearrange if we realize that underneath it all is the great love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is what we remember here. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your bread and cup, Jesus Christ. He is the staple of our lives, the bread and cup. Not just of life from the first birth, but the second birth, the new birth. We gather together each Sunday to, to have our hearts lifted, our minds lifted by your word, your presence together. There's something you do in our midst. Your spirit moves in powerful ways. You touch our hearts. You refresh us and energize us and encourage us us for the great things that you've called us to do because we belong to you. We celebrate this by remembering your love as we take this bread and cup now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had blessed, he broke and said, this is my body which is for you.
makes perfect sense to me that we should keep the love of Jesus Christ before us in all that we do because in this world there is a lot of fear that uh, can grip us and yet perfect love casts out all fear that's part of that open door that's part of this bread that we eat perfect love casts out all fear all regret all shame the past all that remains is the open door taken deep same way after supper the cup also saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood Fear interferes with faith because faith involves risk and risk implies fear. Perhaps a fear that comes from failure or a fear that comes from embarrassment and shame. Not in God's eyes, but the world's. This cup is the cup of the new covenant. It means that every day and every breath is new, that his grace is sufficient for me and for you. 
it means that risks can be taken. There's no fall that's permanent. There's no loss that's too great. Jesus is always there. But what he calls us to do involves faith. It involves risk. It involves living in a new way, taking chances in his name, doing things that don't come easy. That's what the new covenant represents. All of you drink it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you will, pass the cups toward the center. Let's give these guys a round of applause. It's Labor Day weekend. I appreciate you. And that goes for all of you sitting here and the many ways that uh, we celebrate your labor and hard work in our families, in our workplaces. I want to remind you as we close today that we have the opportunity that we, we receive every time that we observe the Lord's Supper and that is to give to the Deacon's Fund. And, and you probably can recite what I'm about to say, but I do want to remind you that it is dedicated to helping those who turn to the church for help, turn to Jesus for help, whether they know it or not, because we make it known to them as we help them in his name. And we not only help those outside the church, but those within the church family as well. So if you are in a position where you need help from the Lord, everybody at some time or another needs a hand up, we offer that to you and we invite you to come in Jesus' name. But if you're able this morning to give, we invite you to give generously so that in Jesus' name we can reach out in his love and the tangible help that we give through this deacon's fund in his name. And man, I really like Timothy playing the piano behind me. I would have been finished five minutes ago, but I just, I get poetic with that music, you know. <laughs> it's like, whoa, there's another great idea or thought. Uh, <laughs> will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, bless your people. Your beloved sheep. May this week they see the doorman. As in John 10, every sheep knows the shepherd's voice. He who keeps the door of the sheepfold. May he be your door to great and wonderful things today and the days to come. I pray this for you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you. Happy Labor's Day.